This week on the podcast, we speak with the one and only Seth Godin about his thoughts about the nonprofit sector, fundraising, and anything else I can think to ask him. This is Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Well, we did it. 100. 100. It takes a lot of work to create 100 podcasts. Uh, I'm not going to say how many years it took, but you can go back and look at it. And I really, uh, I really hoped that we would get Seth Godin for our 100th guest, and we, uh, we did it. And I'm excited because we talk through his thinking uh, around the nonprofit sector's strategy on fundraising, about donors, uh, largely also about uh, the elements and tactics of status and, and tension and placebos and how that can be used to further your cause. Uh, Seth's uh, work ranges. He is uh, an author. He's an entrepreneur. He's, uh, most of all, uh, a teacher. Uh, you know, best-selling author and speaker, in addition to, to launching one of the most popular blogs in the world, he's written 18 best-selling books, including The Dip, Lynchman, Purple Cow, Tribes, and good number of others. I will say uh, I got introduced to Seth early on with uh, reading Purple Cow, it changed, literally changed how I looked at the marketing world. And a few books have sort of flipped the paradigm on its head, and he was uh, an early and leading thinker in the field and still has so many valuable insights in, in today's world. Uh, I was also lucky enough to take uh, one of his early university courses, uh, Nano MBA, which uh, a couple of years later evolved into the Alt NBA, uh, an amazing program that Seth runs uh, for uh, for people interested in, in learning, truly learning the, the field of marketing, how to do more uh, in their jobs, be it starting new ones or, or working in there. I encourage you to check out Alt NBA. We're going to have a lot of resources in this episode, and it's it's number 100. I'm going to get to it. Let's talk to Seth. I'm here with the one and only Seth Godin, author, entrepreneur, and most of all, a teacher. Seth, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. What a uh, treat to talk to you again. It's been too long. It has been too long. And just to fill in our audience, I actually took uh, an early version of uh, the Alt MBA, the Nano MBA, a course with Seth that inspired and guided me in creating Whole Whale. And so, full circle, you're now on our podcast. Seth, walk us through uh, what is taking up most of your time these days before we jump into our back and forth on content. Well, in public, I've got a new book coming out in November that I'm not really talking about just yet. And I've been digging deep into the seminars that I run, the Alt-MBA and the leadership, I mean, and the marketing seminar. Mostly, though, I'm wrestling with how people are stuck in their status quo, afraid to move forward. There's more teaching and learning available to everyone today than any time in human history. But we're spending our time watching cat videos instead. And I'm fascinated by our fear of fear and trying to decode that and hopefully unlock a, a better future for people. 
Yeah, that sort of inertia is our biggest enemy. It's not a competitor. It's not failing. It's literally that that get up and go. That initial step is what you're seeing. Yeah, and you know when you read about extraordinary institutions that have made a big impact on the world, we look at them and say, well, that's impossible, or that guy's a genius. And you know, if I look at uh, the Aravind Eye Hospital in India, you know, they do 250,000 cataract surgeries a year with half the rate of infection that they have in the UK. And they, it's magic, but it's not magic. It's actually sort of obvious when you see how he did it. But too often we say, well, I did my eight surgeries today. I did a good day. When he redefined the standard to be 120 surgeries in a day. And I think each of us can figure out how to redefine that standard, whatever it is in our space. So I want to echo out actually from the individual to the organization and thinking about when we design strategies, I'd say one of the biggest salient points that has ever landed with me is this idea of permission. And it's getting a rebirth, I feel like, with GDPR coming in saying, no, by the way, permission is the right thing to do. Would you mind giving us a a brief riff on how permission can be a true strategy for uh, a nonprofit? Well, you know, all of us got those emails that your privacy is very important to us, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? If our privacy had been very important, they wouldn't have passed the law. Uh, They passed the law because marketers are selfish, short-term narcissists who are taking every scrap of our attention they can get their hands on. And when I wrote Permission Marketing in 1998, it was a scandal. And it was a scandal because I said that anticipated, personal, and relevant messages always do better than spam. Not just when you're up raising money, but when you're sending an email to everyone inside your organization, when you're talking over the dinner table. Talking to people who want to hear what you have to say always works better. It seems super obvious. But as soon as we made it free to show up in someone's email box, the sort of asymmetrical API in which people can take your attention without asking, people took it. And when I think about the people in my life who get an instant yes, When they reach out, they always get an answer. When they ask me for something, I always say, sure. It's a very, very small number. And one of the jobs of a nonprofit when it deals with the outside world, whether it's the people they serve, their staff, or the people they're raising money from, is to figure out how to earn that yes, as opposed to cutting through the noise and the clutter every single time because you're spamming the universe. It makes no sense. And so as you think about permission, I always thought that you would end up rewriting this book, but it would have to be re-earned permission because the next evolution that we have seen is that it's taken for granted once we have that email, we then blast it, we data mine it, we abuse it, and we don't continue to give value. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's back to the selfish part. I don't have to rewrite it because the fundamental precept is permission doesn't belong to you. It's loaned to you. It's not your right. It's something that you got as a privilege. And, of course, it could disappear at any moment. You have to treasure it or it evaporates. Absolutely. The next idea I want to touch on is how you started talking about placebos and It feels like when you talk about placebos, are we not delivering value? Because on the face of it, the concept being it 
can actually help the the mental fortitude of someone just as much as the actual surgical intervention or the actual work you're doing. Talk to me a bit about placebos and the intersection potentially in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, this this is a mystery to me because, you know, some people have been listening to this podcast now for eight minutes and they're all going to turn it off because we brought up placebos. Placebos are the thing that I talk about that gets the least amount of response. If the doctor said to you, I could sell you knee surgery right now and it would be painful and it might get an infection and it will cost you $5,000 out of pocket. Or I could just jump up and down three times and you'll have exactly exactly the same outcome, but it won't cost you and you won't get an infection, which would you prefer? I think most of us would thank her and leave without the surgery. But we know that the placebo, that sham knee surgery actually has the same outcome for various meniscus tears as real surgery. And yet somehow one of them is real and some of them is and one of them is sort of a witch doctor. It makes no sense to me. And what we know when we're serving people as a nonprofit is that much of what we deliver is the feeling of dignity, of being seen, of sawabana, and that that's what people are engaged with us for, not what we think of as our intervention. Or if we think about fundraising, what does someone get when they give you $10,000? They don't get a brochure, they don't get a chicken dinner. What they get is a feeling, and that feeling is a placebo, and it's worth more than $10,000. If it wasn't, they wouldn't have given you $10,000. Expanding on that, this idea that, and that's exactly where I was hoping you would go, that take away the negative connotation of placebo and think about it as, you know, we're not selling air. The people that think that when they're in fundraising they have no product are almost completely wrong. How do we use, I won't use the word hacks, but tactics around magnifying the placebo effect of giving as a nonprofit? Well, I think asking the question is 90% of the, the thing, right? That so much of what New York or New York style nonprofits do is based on tradition, not effectiveness. That if we took a deep breath and zero-based budgeted how we spend our time and effort, we'd understand why we're here and what we do. So a simple example, if you insist on having a gala, I hate galas, you're going to have 35 minutes of everyone in the room's attention. During those 35 minutes, if you started from scratch and you could do anything you wanted for those 35 minutes, are you really telling me that the way you did it last year is the optimal way to make a change on the people in the room? Or think about the waiting room in a tuberculosis ward, right? That if you thought about what the waiting room is for, If you thought about the fact that everyone who's there has a smartphone, if you thought about the fact that some of the people who are there are bringing in their family, how would you design that? That so much of what we do isn't in a serum or in a box of food. It's in a feeling. It's in a surrounding. It's in a narrative. And yet we take it for granted as that's a given. I'm not allowed to change it. It's the easiest thing for you to change. And changing it is transformative. And all you got to do is... Go spend an hour at the offices of the American Cancer Society and go spend an hour in the offices of Do Something. And the difference is profound. And that's a choice. And as a result, you can make a different sort of change for a different sort of person. So uh, I love the game of hearing Seth talk and then you're like, I feel like I listened to something really smart, but what do I do tomorrow with this? Well, what you do tomorrow is 
get over your fear of fear. I have no problem with fear. Fear is fine. But fear of fear? Fear of fear is a waste. The magic of being a nonprofit is this. Our society gives you respect. Our government gives you a tax deduction. What do you have to do in exchange? What you have to do in exchange is fail. Because if we already knew the answer to the problem you're trying to solve, we would have solved it already. That you're in a lab. It's an experiment. And good investigators don't say, I'm afraid to go to work tomorrow because I'm going to put something on my yellow pad or in my laboratory that might not work. That's your job. right? So in his best year, Albert Einstein changed the world not once, not twice, but three times. But on the way to changing the world three times, he filled pad after pad with math that was wrong. That's your job. Your job is to do these experiments to discover which placebos, which engagements, which interventions, which stories change people more. And if you're not prepared to fail, then you shouldn't be at a nonprofit. Yeah, that permission to fail and to remind yourself that you almost owe it to the audience that's supporting you to deliver those stories in a way that they can consume, in a way that hopefully delivers the most value and potentially acknowledge that there could be a health placebo effect. I mean, I would love it if everyone got little uh, placebo vitamins every time they donated, being like, reminder, you helped out these kids in XYZ community today because of that donation. Well, so let's think about that. So one of the things we teach in the marketing seminar is the idea of status and tension. And status and tension are the two things that drive all change in our culture. Status meaning, am I moving up or am I moving down? And tension in, what will I do if it doesn't work? What if I say yes and I was wrong? Those two dance around in a circle. So when I think about giving money to a nonprofit, you know, the reason the Chronicle of Philanthropy chronicles the top donors is because it's a chart of status. And if you look, almost all the donations are to hospitals and colleges, the two institutions that arguably lead, need our money the least. Why do people give money to colleges and hospitals? The answer is because you can have your name on a building. And having your name on a building or being able to talk about it with people that raises your status. So when I think about a nonprofit that wants to raise money, you've got to think about who is going to be giving you money, why are they giving you money, what are the totems and the souvenirs of that transaction? How do I make it so that if I don't give next year, it hurts more than giving does? Because if it hurts more than giving does, I'm gonna give. And one particularly crass example that my grandfather taught me, he was in charge of the local uh, fundraising for a religious type institution in the 50s. And he lived in a fancy neighborhood outside of New York. And the way the fundraising worked was you got 10 people, peers, uh, in his case, judges, lawyers, doctors around the table. And then the first person announces how much he's giving this year. And then it goes all the way around the table with each person making the announcement. And then you're done. Because no one wanted to say number less than anybody else. And so in one night, you raised $150,000 in 1958, and then you're done. So that's too crass to work in most settings. But at Robinhood, it raises $101 million in one night. Yeah, I, being a lifelong 
not nonprofit uh, dedicated employee. One of the things that kills me about looking at some of the donation stats are that you know it's basically two percent of GDP, no matter what. That's what it is. It doesn't seem to be able to move. We move around the piles of money internally, so we're sort of fighting over the the same pool again and again. Uh, do you see that shifting in in the decades to come? Well, yeah, I do, and I think it's going to shift in a way that's going to disappoint most of the nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, my dad ran the United Way in Buffalo one year when I was growing up, and so I saw firsthand the power of payroll deduction. And if you gain status from your position in a stable community like a workplace, payroll deduction makes perfect sense. But scandals aside, the United Way has been struggling because payroll deduction in the unionized workforce is fading. So as our culture becomes more diffuse, as people who have resources are traveling in different circles and they're not trying to worry about the community chest and moving up in a certain sort of elite circle, it's going to be harder and harder for nonprofits that are used to raising money from those circles to do the kind of fundraising they're used to. And the other thing that's going on is the 1% continues to pile up more and more money. And generally, uh, they don't give bigger and bigger amounts of money as they get richer. They think, I've given enough. And so if someone gets 10 times richer and they don't give 20 times as much to charity, they're actually shortchanging themselves and their culture. But I think we're going to see that happen more and more. So I want to throw a question at you that I've been trying to figure out myself. Uh, We, as the sector, according to a couple benchmarks from MNR, lose roughly 80% of our first-time donors that given the first year. And, you know, thereabouts half of everyone else that has given in the past year. You know, that juxtaposed also with the idea that 100% retention is a myth. It's impossible. And actually, the retention stats track more to your brand awareness and top of the funnel metrics. Where are you spending your energy if you are running that nonprofit, that organization that is trying to either we have to fix the retention problem or we have to fix targeted top of the funnel work? Wow. There's a lot of nuance there. So let me try a couple of things. First of all, I'm not surprised that 80% of the dates are only first dates. I think if we look at the data from Tinder, it would be similar. That you get almost all the value from a new donation to a new charity because you get the thrill of saying, I'm a philanthropist. You get the relief of getting rid of the fundraiser. You get uh, the pleasure out of seeing how things are working. But what you bought was hope. And then a year later, someone says, well, you get money again. You go, what? You guys still have that problem? I gave you money to solve that problem. So giving money the second time feels fundamentally different than giving money the first time. So the example I like to give is the 1969 cover of National Lampoon with the dog on it. And the magazine headline said, buy this magazine or we'll shoot this dog. And it was pretty funny because it wasn't actually a dog in danger. But they couldn't do it a year later and say, buy this magazine again or we'll shoot the dog again because they already did that joke. Well, the same thing is true with the typical fundraising move, which is we have an urgent problem and you're the only one who can solve it. Please give us money. And then after I give you money, you didn't keep your end of the bargain. You didn't solve it. So I think 
the biggest opportunity is not to double down on first dates. The biggest opportunity is to realize that you're never going to get a second donation if you make the same pitch you made to get the first donation. That the purpose of the first donation needs to be, how do I get this person to come on a site visit? How do I get this person to foster a dog? How do I get this person to write some letters for me? How, whatever action they take after the donation so that they identify with your mission as if it was their own, that's how you change them. So Jim Zilkowski from Build On has built a magnificent organization. And a key part of it is first-time donors end up in an inner-city school in Chicago or New York. Second-time donors end up in Mali. And once you've been to Mali, you're in. You're not going to stop being a donor because firsthand you've seen the problem and you see the progress made towards solving it. And now its success and your success are the same thing. Yeah, it's um, it's also a field, speaking about marketing in general, that I think there's still a lot of soft science. I think in terms of the numbers we're looking at, you love that joke, uh, and I'm willing to bet you're going to make it. You know, half of our marketing works. Gosh, if we don't know which half, though. So Yeah, I don't think that's true. I, I don't think it's a science. Um, I think it's soft, and I don't think half your marketing is working. I think that showing up gets you something. And then after that, you just want to try to avoid marketing that hurts you. That the number of institutions that have marketing that actually works is pretty small. That being a market driver is different than being market driven. People don't know they want what you have. And so you're not just announcing that you exist. You are changing them. And the act of changing them, you know, in my talks, I show a picture and I say, almost nobody gets a Suzuki tattoo. And then I show a picture of a lot of people with a Harley tattoo. So if you're willing to get a tattoo, then your marketing is working. But if all you do is make a motorcycle and I can pick any motorcycle I want, I may or may not pick you. That's not marketing. That's manufacturing. Yeah. I mean, as I look at it, I uh, am excited about the increasing amounts of data available to tell which types of marketing are helping or hurting and paying attention to the feedback loops that decide whether or not you showed up to work and actually move the ball forward in the cause that you care about. Right. So there are marketing tactics that direct marketers measure and for good reason. And I'm a big fan of that, but I don't call that marketing. I call that a different thing, and there's no good name for it, so it's called marketing tactics. So if you discover that writing a fundraising pitch with five letters does twice the performance of one with two letters, two pages, then, yeah, send five-page letters, please. That's a tactic. But marketing, marketing is the story you tell, the people you serve, the change you're trying to make, and that – is mostly happenstance accident that happens when people who are busy focusing on something else have to do something, but they're not sure why. Alrighty. Since this is uh, a true gift for me, uh, I'm just going to be wildly selfish and ask you some questions that, frankly, I have been dying to ask you. Well, isn't that why one has a podcast to begin with? Go for it. You kidding me? That's, that's it. So I can talk to people like Seth Godin. 
Seth, you bring up uh, Einstein quite often, actually, in, in talking about genius and, and pieces like that, and obviously an, an incredible individual. But there's one quote that I don't know if you've ever heard before, but it comes from Einstein's son who says, I'm the only project my father ever gave up on. Hmm. As That's I so think, as I think about, you know, the time I pour into being an entrepreneur and the projects I work on and the, you know, the energy I put out there in the world, I'm a new dad. I know that you are a, uh, by all accounts, very successful father and, and entrepreneur. Can you talk to me about that balance and your thoughts are there? Well, that's a sad quote I've heard all day. So let me just set that aside so I don't get all teary. Uh, there are two elements of time that are essential when we think about children. The first element of time is this. Synchronization is expensive. That anytime you see a parent who is being a bad parent, giving their kid Fanta in a juice bottle, uh, giving them uh, an iPad to play with at a restaurant when they're two years old, they're doing that because they were forced to do two things at the same time. Go to a restaurant and be a parent. So when we're having trouble with our kids, I think it's important to separate the work we want to do as a parent with the stuff we have to do. And if you can separate them and synchronize them when they are in useful to synchronize, it is way better. If your kid is fractious, stand up and leave the restaurant. It's not that important a dinner that it's worth breaking your relationship. But the second piece about time is that it's really hard to do anything called quality time. And that children need quantity time. And I was delighted to be lucky enough to be a full-time dad for 15 years. And for those of us who are entrepreneurs, who are starting nonprofits, who believe that the work we're doing is close to impossible, it's really easy to also believe that more hours in the work will increase our chances of success. And this is demonstrably untrue. There is no data whatsoever to show that three more hours at the office is better than being brave between nine and five. That time is not a substitute for guts and emotional labor when it comes to starting something that matters. And so what I would say to somebody who has been generous enough to become a parent is, now your next job is to be brave enough to be a leader. And that doesn't mean you spend more time at work doesn't mean you check your email more often. It means you do things that scare you. Yeah. You know, I, I had this sort of tension as uh, as the looming date of uh, my child was coming that I had to basically throw every single ounce of fire, energy, and, and thought into building the company to a place where it would sustain because I was worried there would be some sort of cliff. There would be a, a halting of my ability to play at the level I needed to to succeed. Can you talk about some of the upside, actually, that you've seen as being both a father and successful entrepreneur? Well, you know, they say if you want something done, you ask a busy person. And there are two reasons for that. One, busy people like doing stuff. That's why they're busy. But more important, busy people don't have time to dilly-dally. They don't have time to go to more meetings. They don't have time to polish something that's already good enough. They ship. They merely ship. And any boundary that turns you into a busy person will also make you better. So if someone's listening to this and they don't have kids or their kids are in college or whatever, here's what you should try for a whole week. Only go to work for four hours a day. Do not check your email when you're not at work. 
see what happens. Number one, you will discover that the first thing you do is cancel meetings you don't need to go to. Well, why don't you do that anyway? Number two, you will discover that you stop meddling with people who could do it without you. Well, why don't you do that anyway? And number three, you will discover that instead of agonizing over decisions, you simply make them. Well, why don't you just do that anyway? And then spend the seven hours a day or five hours a day you freed up to go for walks. Within those walks, you will discover the quiet place where you can do brave work. Seth, that's awesome. Alrighty, the final piece we always do here is re- end with some rapid fire. So please, I mean, you keep it short, but keep it short as we move through some of these questions. Uh, what's coming in the next year that has you the most excited? I expected that people who take my seminars and read my stuff are going to do some amazing, amazing breakthrough work, and maybe I'll even hear about it. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today. I believed for a really long time that everyone thought about projects the way I do. They thought about business the way that I do and that their noise in their head was different, was the same as the noise in my head. And only in the last 20 years have I realized that none of those things are true. What is something you think you should stop doing? Answering my email. If you had a magical Harry Potter wand that you could wave across the nonprofit industry, what would it do? I think it would get rid of shame. Can nonprofits, in your opinion, successfully go out of business? I hope so. They should. How can you not put that as part of your mission? All right, Seth, finally, how do people find you? How do people help you? Brand new blog, S-E-T-H-S dot blog, Seth's blog. And uh, if you want to see my all of my other stuff, it's at SethGodin.com. I also have a weekly podcast, not as fascinating as this one, called Akimbo. Seth, I'm beyond grateful for the support you've given me in helping to guide and creating a company. So hopefully you get more stories uh, out there for the work you've put out there in the world. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's a privilege. I hope you go make a ruckus. Well, we got Seth's thoughts on fundraising and and thinking about different tactics and strategies that you can work within, thinking also about the the role we have of creating value, of re-earning permission, and not forgetting some real immutable truths of of what we're trying to do. I I encourage you to give it a re-listen. I encourage you, if you've not heard Seth before, you know, check out his blog, Seth's blog, check out his podcast now, Akimbo, and really understand not only the concept, but the practical application of what he's talking about when he he goes on on some of these terms, because I guarantee you, I guarantee you that there is gold in there, that it will help you refine the next idea and tactic that you try as your organization to, to do more. And I have, uh, you know, I have built a large part uh, whole whale on a lot of the concepts that Seth talks about and applied more, I'd say, on the analytics side to making sure that, you know, the tactics see ROI, that we understand and can measure some of the, the softer interactions we have out there. And in, uh, in essence, you know, a, a large part, it's a big thanks uh, to the work he's put out there. 
and it's an underpinning. You know, this podcast exists because we believe in putting out value regularly for our audience. Our educational content exists because we want to move the needle on social impact work in the sector and understanding and teaching how data and tech can be leveraged a bit more for positive outcomes. Uh, I think it's on you if you didn't get something out of this podcast, because I certainly did. I'm so excited that you were able to join me on a conversation I was able to have with a personal mentor of mine. Anyway, uh, looking forward to another, oh gosh, another hundred episodes potentially with you. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back, get back to work and start hustling here. This has been Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. Resources, as always, may be found at wholewhale.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us. Time to feed the whales with a quick note from our sponsor, Whole Whale. Uh, Lighthouse by Whole Whale is a product that lets you see exactly what people signing up on your site with emails on any form are doing inside of Google Analytics. With a little bit of code we toss onto your site, suddenly you get to understand what somebody did for the past two years on your site and what paths, what pages, what clicks led them to becoming a, a member of your email subscription list and then moving forward what they're doing on your site. This is effectively de-siloing data that is already in your backyard and helping you connect Google Analytics and whatever CRM you're using right now. Check it out at getlighthouse.io. That's getlighthouse.io. Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org. Greg Thomas doing the best podcast editing that, uh, you know, that's deserving of this kind of uh, audience and content. Thanks, Greg.